Welcome to Funeral Potatoes for the Singles Ward. Tune in to today's taboo topic with Kaylee and Tracy. I want to like start us off with a joke or something, but I'm like, this is kind of a serious topic. So this I is a very serious episode. <laughs> I know. And I want to call us a religious comedy podcast, but then there's like these episodes where it's just like, we've got tears streaming down our cheeks and we're like, there's no time to laugh now. Honestly, so, season one was funnier because we didn't know what we were it doing. Was. Yes. <laughs> oh, our confusion and our <laughs> inability to concentrate really did a lot for us. That <laughs> Oh my gosh. And it also, I feel like it helped because we were in the same room. That's true. And so that like just pushed us over the edge of lunacy, but that's true. We're we're making it work now. It's fine. Yes. Yeah. Every relationship has to go through its trials and challenges and changing evolution, whatever. And this is us now. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. We got this. Yeah. All right. Well. Today, ladies and gentlemen, brethren and sistren, no, (laughs) why not? Today is episode one of the Atonement series, which we've been really excited about. Yes, it's going to be good. We want to talk to you about clearly the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, And we did mention this last week. So if you didn't listen to that episode, you should well, I mean, you should just listen to that one anyways. But we did give you a warning that this was happening. Yes. Yes, we did. Some of you listening may not be as familiar with the term atonement, or maybe you've heard it your whole life, and you just want to understand a little bit more about it because there is so, so much. <laughs> so we decided as we prepare for Easter that we should devote our episodes to Jesus Christ by talking about his death and resurrection, and how we can grow in our continual education and study about the atonement. So today, we are going to be focusing on the events, just the events leading up to Christ's suffering in Gethsemane, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. So it's literally just day-to-day events. Right, so the week. And I mean, I thought it was going to be simple, but (laughs) there is so much. So this is a long episode. I'm not apologizing because this stuff is good, but you have been warned. We had a couple days this last week as we were preparing where we were like, did you know that all of these things happened in a week? Right. (laughs) And then especially as we got to like, the day before the crucifixion mm-hmm. we're like all of this happened in 24 hours what yeah. on earth i thought we were i was like okay we are almost done we are so close and then i was like i'm sorry we're missing like the last two days still yeah and i was like ha- we'd already had like so many pages of notes it's crazy <laughs> it's like whoops so we did have to cut out a lot which i'm a little bummed about but we got to focus and that's okay so we are focusing you guys and we're going to help you focus but we'll be able to bring back some more things as we go throughout the series because oh heck yeah we're like we're mentioning the events and we're not going to go like in depth into all of them because clearly all of them are a lot but as we go through the next few episodes in this series we will be able to dive a little bit deeper into them so today we're just going to be outlining what they are and then later on in the month we'll be Going headfirst into the deep end. Right. Beautiful. Okay, so we're going to even take one more step back just to run over with you. What exactly is the atonement? Let's define that. So in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe that God's plan involved us coming to earth, 
gaining a body, enduring trials, and making choices that would help us ultimately return to him. As a part of God's plan, he gave us agency, the freedom to choose, which means that we could choose good or evil, choose to follow God or not. As a way to satisfy the demands of justice, meaning you choose wrong, you get consequences, and mercy, meaning you didn't know any better, you have a chance at redemption, he sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, who would be the only one able to suffer and die for our sins. The atonement is Christ's sacrifice in both the Garden of Gethsemane, where he suffered for all the sins, pains, and afflictions of mankind, as well as his death on the cross. The resurrection is a final piece of the atonement because it showed that he was able to overcome death for us all and we'll all be resurrected like he was when he comes again. And so this is one of the things I've always really liked about our church is that we focus more on, well, like really the the overall week, especially the Garden of Gethsemane, um, rather than just his death on the cross. So this week, we'll go more in depth on the atonement and why studying it, likening it, and accessing it is so important in our lives. But for right now, we're just going to do our best to explain the days leading up to the atonement and give you some background on it. It's going to be good. But we do have a note. Um, so we're basically going to be talking Sunday to Sunday um, of that least last week of Jesus' life. So at least in our research, um, when we were comparing some content ver- compared to those in other churches, they do actually count the days or the moments differently. So some churches believe he was uh, dead for three days and three nights. Our belief is that it was more along the lines of, you know, Friday afternoon to Sunday morning. Um, so a little bit less. Uh, some of the days don't necessarily match up. So some believe that he was crucified on Wednesday, whereas we do believe he was crucified on Friday. This does happen a lot because of the accounts of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These accounts are made by men that can be flawed and disagree with one another. Some of them say, hey, this is a day later. Some of them don't. So it's hard to tell which one was going on. Um, People are different, and we understand that most of these accounts were also written years later after all of this had happened. So we have to go on off the basics of what they're trying to get across. So you want to focus on the events. Um, We'll be differentiating the days, but we don't want to make that the biggest focus. Exactly. So we're going to be focusing on just saying like number day instead of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because of that exact reason. We found this great article in the April 1972 Ensign by Daniel H. Ludlow, and it's called The Greatest Week in History. And we're going to refer back to this article quite a bit in this episode. We wanted to start out with this quote, which talks about it being truly the greatest week in history. He says, quote, When the history of this world is finally written upon with an eternal perspective, many events will vie as being worthy to be included. However, because of their significance to every person who has ever lived on this earth or who will ever live on it, the events of the last week of the Savior's life, from the Sunday morning of his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem to the Sunday morning of the resurrection, will undoubtedly be acclaimed as the greatest week in history. Without the events of that week, particularly those which took place in the Garden of Gethsemane and at the time of the resurrection, everything else is virtually meaningless, end quote. So we wanted to start out with that and get us kicked off by talking about day one, which was Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So this account can be found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 12, Mark chapter 11, Luke chapter 19, and John chapter 12, verses 12 through 37. And it's important to note that this is the fifth day before the Passover. Yeah, so those are also the chapters where you really start reading into Jesus last week and everything goes on from there. 
And we didn't want to highlight. So as this day begins, he Jesus is coming from somewhere. He's coming from somewhere very important. He's coming from Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And that's where he'd just been with his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, where he just worked a super amazing miracle. And so this is when he's, and he'd been traveling up from Galilee. And so he's just gone through there and he's on his way into Jerusalem. And this is, uh, what did you call it? The, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the one where you see like the pictures of him on a donkey and there's like palm leaves in the ground. That's that's what it yes. is. It's super exciting. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's a celebration. Um, we know that there were throngs of people shouting, celebrating, and cheering Jesus as a promised Messiah who would save them and free them from their enemies. The Passover was underway at this time, and there were throngs of Jewish pilgrims who had arrived in Jerusalem from many lands to join in Passover celebration and worship. This begins the last week of the Savior's mortal life. Oh, and then that one is a quote from a book that I will be constantly referencing because it has so much great content. So the book is called Your Study of the New Testament Made Easier, Part 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is in the Gospel Study Series written by David J. Ridges. It's amazing. It takes you verses through verses. It includes a Joseph Smith translation verses and helps you to compare with notes in it relating to history, um, uh, religious talks, and so on. As he's about to enter, he actually sends two of his disciples up ahead to go bring him an ass and a colt. So that's an adult and a young donkey so that he could then ride um, on them. Okay, so it's interesting, though, because in Matthew 21, verse 5, and Luke 19, 30, they highlight that he writes the cult, which had never been written before. And so in the book that uh, I was reading, it it's basically just saying, hey, this is highlighted in a few of the books to point out that Jesus did have the power and command over all living. And it's also interesting to note how in the Jewish culture and symbolism of that day, a donkey symbolized humility and submission. And so it's basically saying, hey, he came in meekness and submission to carry out the Father's will. I did not realize there was so much like symbolism in all of that. So there's a lot. So we're going to continue on by explaining how there were palm branches and clothes laid out before him. In Jewish culture, palm branches symbolized triumph and victory. These people were expressing their belief that Jesus would bring them military triumph and victory over their Roman oppressors. And Hosanna literally means Lord save us now. Okay, no, I was just going to say it's a very interesting note because, yeah, he did get a lot of followers and, um, who really cared and listened to him. But the more his message spread, the more it began to become miscommunicated. So whereas in Galilee, they seem to understand, hey, I'm, I've got a connection with God. This is how you live your life, so on. But here in Jerusalem, they're like, you're going to get the, rid of the Romans for us, right? You're riding in. You're going to bring swords. You're going to do all this. And that's not actually how it's going to be. So there was already a lot of contention facing him in Jerusalem. And it's interesting then how the Pharisees mentioned in Luke 20 told Jesus to rebuke the people who were shouting Hosanna, who were crying out to him, because that was going to, it was bound to get him in trouble one way or another. Um, But Jesus instead told them, if I tell you that, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. It's just very fascinating because he's like, okay, this is what needs to happen. Like these people are speaking to it. They don't know, they don't, totally understand it to a certain extent. They think I'm going to bring them freedom from their Roman process, but I'm going to bring them a different kind of freedom. And this needs to happen. So what's very interesting to me about this whole section is that this is all in fulfillment of the prophecy of the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, where he speaks for the Messiah saying, quote, 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. It's very interesting. I never realized that this was actually fulfillment of a prophecy and that Christ telling the disciples like, hey, go ahead of me and get me like an ass and a colt could have been him being like, oh, wait, I remember there's a prophecy about this happening. I know what's going to happen this week, so I got to take care of this. So I just think that's a really fascinating little nugget of information for this. It does. Well, then it immediately makes me wonder, hey, did Jesus have to think about all the prophecies that he needed to fulfill? Or were they just natural thoughts? Who who was He might have been like, okay, you know, people are going to see me. I should be riding something or my feet are tired. Can you get me an animal to ride? Like maybe they all had horses that they or animals that they were riding and he was the only one. Or maybe the spirit was just constantly prompting him like, oh, hey, bro, you got to fulfill this prophecy. Like, that's what I would assume. What was, you know, no, never mind. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Anyways, so after after riding into Jerusalem, Christ laments the future destruction of Jerusalem, which can be found in John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. The Savior laments that he knows he's coming into Jerusalem to meet the end of his ministry, and that as a result, Jerusalem will inevitably fall or be destroyed. As he's lamenting to Heavenly Father, in verse 28, it says, Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but because of your sakes. End quote. It's very fascinating that an angel's voice essentially came from heaven and confirming that this is the savior. You guys should have listened to him. You should have been listening to him and expecting what's going to happen in the next few days. But like, you still have time to repent and make things right for yourselves because the clock is ticking and Jerusalem's going down. So tick tock, y'all. All right, so then back to our Enzyme article, it says, Then the Savior gave his discourse on the children of light, reminding the people that the light would be with them only yet a little while, and admonishing them. When ye have light, believe in the light, and that ye may be the children of light. And that's in John 12, verses 35 and 36. Then it's mentioned in Mark eleven eleven, And when the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. So though he was going into Jerusalem during the day, he was staying out in Bethany for the evening. It's unclear if he did end up staying with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, or he found other lodging. We're not really sure, but that's where he would go to and from. So that ends day one. So we're going to move on to day two, which is the cursing of the fig tree and casting people out of the temple. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22, Christ curses a fig tree. Here we read about Christ returning to Jerusalem to get food in the morning, essentially, and he passes a fig tree that is only bearing leaves and no fruit. In verse 19, it says, He came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig withered away. This is really cool. It's symbolic. I'd never realized it. That is super cool. Okay, please tell us. From Kaylee's book that she mentioned, 
the New Testament made easier. So this is symbolic of the hypocritical Jewish religious leaders who pretend to look official, but do not produce the fruit of the gospel. It is also symbolic of the Jewish nation, the covenant people who are barren as far as the gospel is concerned. When his apostles were amazed, Jesus told them, in Matthew 21, verse 21, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. What we read from this section of Matthew, the very next day, his apostles will pass by it and see that it has completely dried up and died overnight. And it's a further testimony to us, the reader, that we need to act on the teachings of Christ and bring forth good fruits of the gospel and not just be, oh, we're rooted in the gospel, but like, we have nothing to show for it. We need to actually be doing something. Exactly. Action, commitment is required. And so, of course, Jesus is always doing something. So even after he does that, um, he then goes to the temple and cleanses it of money changers and vendors. This is discussed in Matthew 21, verses 12 and 15. And John chapter 2, verses 14 through 22. And it's a good reminder in John how he mentions that Jesus had done this at the beginning of his ministry and he's doing it the second time around, which I had not realized. I thought he only did it once. Yeah, I did too. I like it. And it's just like an important reminder because money exchangers and animal sellers had reduced the temple grounds to anything but a sacred place. And I've always had a hard time visualizing it. I don't know why. Just like, okay, like why would they be doing something like that? But I can imagine I can't imagine people trying to have like a farmer's market on like temple grounds today. And I'm like, I get the vibe, but like that's so wrong. Like you don't do that. Like you need to have the temple grounds clear and spiritual and awesome and amazing. So Jesus is like, you guys got to listen to me the second time around. Like, out you go. All right. Then in the Enzyme article, it shares a really great point. Uh, he says, another event that possibly happened on the second day of the week was the cleansing of the temple. Regardless of the exact day, it was three years to the week from the time the Savior had driven the money changes from the temple. On that occasion, he had accused him of making his father's house and house of merchandise in John 2, 16. On this second occasion, now he has openly avowed himself to be the Messiah. The Savior refers to the temple as my house. When he quotes the scripture, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. That's in Matthew 21, 13. Before the week is over, the Savior will say to the rebellious residents of Jerusalem concerning the temple, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. In Matthew 23, 38. The shift in these words is shown possession. It's both interesting and significant. The apostate religious leaders were incensed at this treatment by the Savior, and the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. I get that they're mad, but like they're totally wrong. Jesus is not done when he does that. He's got to do some more work at the temple. And so while he is there, he goes to heal the blind and the lame, even if there were dangerous people still around because there's no way they just are like, okay, yeah, like we'll leave. Bye, bye, bye. No, they're just like glaring at him across the fence or something. And then, of course, they, the Jewish leaders were sore displeased as they heard children there at the temple shouting for Jesus to save them. Hosanna's. He was saying, they were saying similar words to that. So it's the Jewish leaders who then told Jesus that, hey, it's, it's dangerous to be called the Messiah, especially in Jerusalem. Like, you can't be doing that. Jesus responded, basically saying, you're supposed to know the scriptures. Haven't you ever read that from childlike faithful members come true praises of God? 
So he's just like, guys, read the script. You're not reading the scriptures. Read the scriptures. I love it when he gets sassy. <laughs> it, it just it hurts and it's funny and it's just ironic how we can read the scriptures and just completely miss the point sometimes. So it's a very valuable lesson that we need to <laughs> keep in our hearts. Absolutely. So in the Churches Come Unto Christ website, it is so good, you guys. There's a section specifically about Holy Week and the cleansing of the temple. On that site, it says, quote, Sometimes our own lives can seem as crowded and conflicted as the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ showed us that we can have the courage to remove unnecessary distractions that come between us and our relationship with the Father, end quote. We always joke, we, we have joked on this podcast in the past about how we loved it whenever we would read accounts of Jesus getting sassy with the people that he was teaching, like when they were asking like, but do you really want us to love everyone? And he's like, did I stutter? Uh-uh. Like, come on. And then <laughs> yes. like with this example with him literally just like throwing tables and driving animals out, like it's so clear the example that the Savior is making here that we need to rid our minds and our lives of the unnecessary distractions that come between us and the Savior. Because ultimately, having that strong relationship with the Savior and with our heavenly parents is what's going to help us to survive this life and to thrive in this life. Exactly. So we can be lovable trash, but we have to do it right. Yeah. (laughs) So. So that wraps up day two. Day two. All right. So um we're gonna merge the next two days because a lot happens but it's a lot a lot of the similar stuff that he's doing basically christ contends with the religious and government leaders over the next two days so i mean you can imagine everything that he's doing is not considered acceptable by any means to anyone there his actions really ticked off the religious and secular leaders so much so that they were all beginning to conspire together to trap jesus and make a mockery of him by catching him in his words lol (laughs) (laughs) as if that would work i know oh my gosh they should be so embarrassed of themselves right um so the more Jesus teaches, the more people are listening to him, the more everyone else is like, we're going to lose power. We're going to lose control. This is going to be so bad. Like they're getting angry. It's, it's a lot. So in the New Testament made easier, it points out having failed to stop Jesus themselves, these wicked chief priests, scribes, and elders now recruit others to help them trap Jesus and get him arrested. It is interesting to note that the Pharisees and Herodians normally are enemies. Now they have joined together to trap the master. The Herodians were a political party among the Jews who supported the the Herodian family as rulers, which is very distasteful to the Pharisees. So basically, it's like Republicans and Democrats coming together to be like, this person can't be doing this. So imagine that. Imagine leftists and conservatives coming together and being like, we got to work together on this. That's wild. So big stuff. (laughs) Big stuff. So we split it up into four groups of people. So the first one is the chief priests. You can find most of what they're talking about in Matthew 21 verses 23 through 27. Exactly. So we're going to go back to the Ensign article for this little section about the chief priests. So the article starts out by saying, They had spent their time devising barbed questions with which they hoped to discredit him, meaning discredit the Savior. When the Savior arrived at the Temple Mount, the first group to come forth with their question was a delegation representing the hierarchy of the Temple. 
they remembered only too vividly how he had cast out the money changers and had accused them of making his house a den of thieves. Therefore, they accosted him with their carefully prepared question, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Which can be found in Matthew 21, verse 23. It's important to note that these men were at the temple when Jesus cleansed it, literally a day or two ago. They were some of the people that he drove out of the temple. So, of course, they're going to be really salty about it. (laughs) They are back for more. (laughs) So, to summarize his response, the Savior asked them where they think John the Baptist got his authority to baptize. Was it from heaven or was it from men? They didn't answer it based on testimony or faith. They reasoned together and they said, If we say heaven, you'll ask us why we don't believe you. But if we say of man, the people will revolt because they know he was a prophet. And that can be found in Matthew 21 verses 25 through 27. So then afterwards, because they can't really say what the answer is, Jesus goes, well, then I can't tell you either where my my authority comes from. And essentially, Jesus says, you don't get to ask me where it comes from because y'all can't even answer that simple question. He proceeds to share many of his important parables right after this, and some of them point out the hypocrisy of these religious leaders who claim to do the work of the Lord, but clearly do not. And Jesus shares more parables and teaches the leaders until they finally get the message. And they want to lay their hands upon him, but they fear the multitude, so they end up leaving. So, fun story there. All right. Yeah. So that was group one with the chief priests. Group two is the Herodians. And you can find that section in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. So the next group to attempt to ridicule the master were the Herodians and sought to bring down any possible new religious leadership. Their barbed question was, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? To summarize Jesus' response, he called them out as hypocrites first, then he asked to see a coin, and pointed out on that coin was Caesar's face and superscription. He then famously said, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. In Matthew 22, verses 17 through 21. Wait, he was saying something about Caesar beforehand. That's why they were asking. But if he just said this point now, then he might have said something else beforehand. Oh, it was like, it was the, do you serve Caesar? Who do you, which master do you serve? Do you serve Caesar or some other master? Okay, yes, that's right. My bad. Yes, thank you. Yes. So he'd already been talking about Caesar and they're like, we're going to catch him in a trap now. And he's like, <clears throat> you can't trap me, fools. <laughs> so then group three is the Sadducees. And this happened on the same day as the Herodians. That one I found in the scriptures to say that one. So this can be found in Matthew chapter 22 verses 23 through 33. The Sadducees were the next group to attempt to trick the Savior. They were of that faction of Judaism who were avowed opponents of the Pharisees and who disagreed with them on many religious questions, just like Kaylee had explained. On this occasion, the Sadducees asked the Savior a question based on the extremely unlikely situation of a woman who had been married to and then widowed by seven consecutive brothers, which is so ridiculous and why anyone would need an answer about this is absurd so no yeah so their query mm. (laughs) their query was in the resurrection whose wife shall she be of the seven honestly like if that's your big concern you need to reevaluate your life but whatever i digress 
To summarize again, the Savior knew that the real question was not about who the wife would be married to, but whether or not there was indeed a resurrection. He dealt with the substance of their question by saying, quote, God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. End quote. And that can be found in Matthew chapter 28, verse, or sorry, Matthew chapter 22, verses 28 through 32. So essentially, he's just like, first of all, y'all don't even believe that there is a resurrection. So, like, why are you coming at me with this nonsense? Second of all, we've already discussed this in all of my teachings over the last, all right, the last three years. Come on. <laughs> God is a God of the living. Like, y'all, get over this. Right. If you want to try to trick someone, then you need to be very comprehensive in that topic. But they're trying to trick them in something they don't really understand or believe in, which is not going to get them anywhere. Let's be real here. So the Sadducees did not make the cut. Group four then is the Pharisees. So their section, their conversation can be found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 46. So the final group, the Pharisees, were ready with their question, which was prepared by a lawyer. Master, which is the great commandment and the law? And that's in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. So the Savior's answer, however, was definite and unequivocal. He replied in almost the same words used by Moses with the children of Israel, which words Moses had commanded the Israelites to teach diligently to their children. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And that's in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. I like that because he's just like, because they believed Moses. They read his stuff. Like they believed in all that stuff. So he's just like, I'm, I'm repeating what you already know. Like you can't trick me because I do support Moses. You support Moses. Come on here. This is my favorite one of the four, honestly, because you can tell that by the end of this, the savior is just over it. He's like, you will not win. You will not win. Just give up. And so after answering that question, he flips the script and then he asks them a question. And in Matthew chapter 22, verses 38 through 40, he asks, what do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? And they respond, the son of David, duh. Everybody knows that. And then Christ explains to them how if David called upon the Lord when he was in need of strength, then how could Christ possibly be his son? No one could answer that, and so they all left salty. And I love that. I love it so much. So now, seeing that the Savior had sufficiently confounded and pissed off every religious and secular leader in the area, he took the disciples to the Mount of Olives where they could meet together privately. They asked Christ questions, and they asked him to explain prophecies that he had already given previously. After answering the specific points raised by his disciples, the Savior concluded his teachings to them that day by giving them his last three parables that are recorded in the New Testament, which are the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the entrusted talents, and the parable of the inevitable judgment. The Savior then returned to Bethany to spend the night and to prepare for the trying ordeal that was ahead. So, at this point, Christ is done teaching the public. He's like, I gave y'all a chance. I'm done. Let's go. Let's keep it moving. And he wants to spend the rest of his final week with the 12 apostles. Yes, he's going to be focusing on teaching them and preparing them to teach when he is gone. And so, yeah, so we've got the majority of his parables during this time as well. Right when he's finished talking with um, all the religious leaders and talking with the 12. And you can see a theme in many of them on what we are meant to do to 
to draw closer to our heavenly parents to you know to start preparing to be putting our talents to use and being prepared for everything that comes ahead of us and i just really like how he teaches his disciples all these valuable lessons and like towards the end he's just like he's trying to prepare them the best way that he can like he's already told them what's going to happen and they're just like yeah like uh parables like stories yes that's good um but they don't really understand that he's going to die and literally be resurrected and come back to life you can tell that they're definitely thinking like but you're young you have so much life ahead of you like (laughs) stop talking about leaving us like you're never gonna leave us you you're only Mm -hmm. 33 (laughs) get out of here (laughs) goodness Anyways, so that concludes days three and four of the last week. So we're going to move on to day five, which is a huge day. (laughs) There's so much. (laughs) This is going to be the longest one. It is the Last Supper and Gethsemane. So this is is the beast. The feast of the Passover was celebrated in the springtime at about the same time as we celebrate Easter. It commemorated the time when the destroying angel passed over the houses of the children of Israel and Egypt when the firstborn of the Egyptians were killed. The Israelites in Egypt at the time were were instructed by Moses to sacrifice a lamb without blemish and to put blood from the lamb which was sacrificed on the doorposts of their houses. You can see this in the Bible dictionary under the word feast. Thus, through the blood of a lamb, the Israelites were protected from the anguish and punishment brought to the Egyptians by the destroying angel. The symbolism is clear. It is by the blood of the lamb, sacrifice of the Savior, that we are saved after all we can do. And this is referenced by 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 23. Now at the time of the Passover in Jerusalem, the Lamb of God, Christ, will present himself to be sacrificed, that we might be saved. The Feast of the Passover brought large numbers of Jews from near and far to Jerusalem to join in the worship and celebration. We don't have a lot about the morning or I think personally even the afternoon of it. We really concentrate on the evening and everything that happened probably within a span of four to six hours. So we want to start with how Mary anoints Christ with oil. And this is in Matthew 26 verses 6 through 13. So like we said, uh, they'd been seen out of Jerusalem back in Bethany. And so this is where they would have the feast of the Passover and where Jesus' last supper occurs. The Mary who anoints Christ with oil is the sister of Lazarus. Uh, so the Mary who anoints Christ with oil is the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha. I'll just say this. So I put in parentheses, Lazarus is the very same who was raised from the dead and Martha who is the famous account of Mary choosing to listen to the Savior while Martha served everybody food. I didn't realize that all three of them were siblings until this last week. Well, it's it's in the story that Mary and Martha were like, our brother has died. Isn't that what it says in the New Testament? But here's the thing. But there are so many Marys in the New Testament that I cannot keep track of all of them. So like, <laughs> I really true. was like, oh, that's, it was some other random fair. Mary that like has a brother named Lazarus and Mary and Martha are sisters. Maybe it's another set of Marys. Like, I don't know. So it literally took me until this week for me to realize that no, all three of them are siblings. It's been the same Mary the entire time. Yeah, no, as I as we were working on this one, I was I was making connections with some of the other Marys as well, and I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. The things we learn, you guys, it's amazing. Pick a new name, gosh. But that would that would have been so helpful. Can you give us like a Helen or like an Abigail or something else different? Anyways, I digress. It's fine. It's fine. Anyways, so 
First, Mary anoints Jesus with costly ointment. So Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one, as you can reference in the Bible dictionary. It would seem that this woman understood what the disciples did not yet fully understand and symbolically anointed the Savior in preparation for his atoning sacrifice. This sheds light on the divine nature and spiritual sensitivity of women. And that's reference from the New Testament made easier. But it's also really fascinating that Mary picked up on that so much faster. Like she picked up, Jesus has been warning us for a while that like, he's going to leave us soon. I feel like it's probably going to be this week. And she was probably one of the few, if not the only one who was actually listening to what he said. And she was like, I actually do need to prepare myself for when Jesus goes. So let me do what I can because he's teaching me this and I feel like the spirit's teaching me this. So I should probably do this for him. I do like that. I I really wish we had like more context for this, but I do love all these potential reasonings behind this and behind them. It's also interesting though, uh, to point in specifically John, he points, he always has some really interesting points to share. And so during this, um, John chapter 12 does differ saying that Mary anointed him before his arrival in Jerusalem instead of on this evening. Um, but so I don't know about that. The more important thing I think to know is that Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, he's the one who complained that Mary was using expensive oil. And he was saying that the, mo- the money should have gone elsewhere. Like we are here to help uh, serve the poor and everyone like we shouldn't be using expensive things on ourselves, which I mean, I do understand to an extent. And apparently he was the one who used to help manage the finances for the disciples. I, I can kind of understand his perspective from a basic point. He just, he wasn't getting there though. He wasn't where Mary was um, in understanding what was going on. I didn't know that about him. That's cool. So the next thing we're going to talk about is Christ washing the feet of the apostles. So that can be found in John chapter 13, verses four through 17. So during dinner, um, Christ got up from the dinner table, he got a basin of water, he got a cloth, and he began washing the feet of his disciples. As we know from the account, Peter stops him and asks him why he's washing his feet. And the Savior responds that he has to be purified in order to truly be his disciple. He also infers that they will be clean every whit, but not all of them. So in this section, I realized that it's because he's like, giving a little side eye to the one who would betray him. That's what he meant. He didn't mean like, oh, you're, if I clean your feet, like your whole bodies will be clean. He literally meant like, you 11 will be clean, but one of y'all are not going to be clean. So I thought that was interesting. I also love this story because he sets this example that a master is no greater than the servant and that everyone should be constantly serving everyone else. In verses 16 and 17, the Savior explicitly says, quote, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them, end quote. So really he is explaining no one is better than another person in the eyes of the Lord. And the sooner that you realize this and the sooner that you act upon that humility, that lesson of humility, the better off you'll be in life. So I love that story. Exactly. It is so important. I just love that. And I think it, it must have been such a powerful lesson. At least I think like to have that happen because yeah, that was a servant's job to do to, to wash their feet and everything. But then the person they respect more than anyone else, the person they love the most is like, here, I'm going to serve you in this way. It is so beautiful. So after that, the Savior institutes the sacrament. 
So you can find a really good uh, description of this in Luke 22, verses 7 through 20. So in the last two verses, 19 and 20 specifically, Christ breaks bread and tells them to eat in remembrance of his body and to drink wine in remembrance of his blood. The apostles didn't understand what he was talking about at this point, but they did listen. So there is an article titled Easter Week in the April 2013 Ensign. This article is about the Easter week, clearly, and it has an amazing quote, an amazing quote, which says, During his last meal, Jesus promised his apostles that they would receive the Comforter, or Holy Ghost, when he was gone. He taught them to remember him by partaking of the sacrament. And I really liked uh, a reminder that I had in the New Testament Made Easier book, and it mentions how that, yes, they would have the Holy Ghost or the Comforter, and in a few of the Gospels, it mentions how it was it was termed a another comforter or a second comforter. So the first one was Jesus. He was their comforter. The second one was the Holy Ghost who was there when he could not be there himself. I, ne- I hadn't really thought of it in that sense before. And the book even made a point of saying like they would have had the Holy Ghost w- with them specifically as well during the 40 days he was gone from them. And so they're having, they're going to have the Holy Ghost with them once again, which would have been very powerful. Seriously. All right, so the next thing that happens that night is Judas leaves to betray Jesus Christ and the, quote, Lord, is it I section. That can be found in Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, and John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. So at some point during the dinner, Christ warns the apostles that someone in the room is going to betray him. And I think this is like the most pure moment in the New Testament because every single one of the apostles asks Lord, is it I? All of them do. And I thought that was so cute. I can't remember which um, which account says it, but like Judas even asks the Lord, is it I? And the Lord just goes, thou hast said. Like, <laughs> That's just, right, yes. I don't remember. It's like, no. I don't remember which account it's in, but I love yeah, it. Yeah. Have, you, have you seen the meme, the, the TikTok? Is it I, Jesus? No. Is it I, Jesus? No. Is it I, Jesus? Is it I, Jesus? Is it I, like, Jesus? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I love that. Um, so, aside from so how pure says. all of the other apostles oh are, yes, um, yes. <laughs> in John's account, specifically, Peter asks the Lord to tell him who it is. Like, Peter's basically like, hey, oh, Jesus, I know we tight, so like, Just give me a name. Just tell me who it is. So Christ says in verse 26, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. So a sop is just like a morsel of something. And he probably just dipped it in like oil or something like that. And then he dips it and gives it to Judas. Like, I love how shady the Lord is being here without actually trying to be shady because you know, the Lord isn't really shady, but like he kind of is. And then you and I were talking a lot over the weekend about how we don't understand why no one suddenly attacks Judas like they should in this point. I would be so ready to fight. Like, if Jesus was like, <clears throat> here's the person who's about to betray me, I'd be up in arms. I'd be like, here's a knife. Here's my fork. I got you. Like, come on. How does that not happen? Or even in that one account when Judas goes, Lord, is it I? And the Lord just goes, thou hast said like i would have been listening to everyone like if i had been one of his disciples i'd have been listening to all the responses and been like the lord said no to him 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 it comes down to this asshole in the corner i know it's got to be him like i would have jumped him um so 
what the book, the New Testament made easier suggests it is in John's account. Um, he suggests that even though Peter asked a question, Christ didn't speak loud enough for Peter or anyone else but John, who was right next to him. I think there's even a reference of John leaning on Christ's shoulder there and only whispered to John. So there's a chance that nobody really, yeah, was either paying attention. They didn't hear him. Um, Jesus was saying other things along with this and is saying like, that was said and blah, 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 blah. Potentially, like we don't have all the information. There is a reason why they weren't just all up in arms being like, this is about to happen because they'd done everything they could at this point to protect Jesus. Like they'd been like getting him, getting him out of cities. They had been helping him like stay away from like the people who are trying to threaten him and everything. They were putting in mental and physical effort to protect Jesus. So the fact that they did nothing, like there's, there has to be a reason to it. And so I do kind of like this explanation that, it was just an intimate moment between Jesus and John, and jo and John understands this, but he doesn't really know what's about to happen, and he just trusts Jesus to be like, well, this will all work out. That's personally how I'm trying to see this. I don't know if any of this is accurate, but yes. Christ turns to Judas, and he very quietly says in verse 27, that thou doest do quickly. So we learn later that Judas leaves to turn Christ in for money. Um, in this account and in Mark's account, we find out that as soon as Jesus says this to Judas, there's, quote, the devil entered into Judas and Judas was taken away by, like, evil, essentially. But I feel like it, it I feel like there was some premeditation involved with this because Judas clearly knew who he was going to go talk to and, like, who to give money to and, like, who was the highest bidder. So, like, obviously there was premeditation there. Oh, uh, I don't know about the highest bidder, though. I'm just going to... We'll I mean, it wasn't later, it wasn't a lot of money, but like that wasn't maybe. Anyways, not that it should have been. Um. um, so then the remaining eleven apostles don't make the connection that Judas is literally about to betray him because they all think that he's just going to go make a little purchase for the next day. Like he's going to go buy drinks, or he's going to go buy food, or he's going to go buy something else for the next day. So they just don't make that connection that that's what's about to happen. Like we said, he'd been in charge of handling the financials for the disciples. So when the Christ was like, go do it, then they're like, oh, yeah, bye, Judas. You don't get to hang out with Jesus right now because we're hanging out with him and you've got chores to do. They don't make the connection that we got to watch out for that son of a gun because trouble's brewing. So, yeah, so Judas leaves. He doesn't participate in the rest of the evening until after midnight so technically the next day um, but anyways back to christ the next thing he does is that he warns peter that he's going to deny him he'll deny christ three times these sections are found in john first chapter 13 verses 36 through 38 as well as luke 22 verses 31 through 34 so this is where peter tells the lord that he will never deny him and will always remain with him the Savior then tells him in Luke 22, verse 34, that the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. I always hated this part. I was like, Peter, you wimp. I always loved this story. Growing up, I always thought that it meant that he would deny Christ as the Savior or that he had been an apostle of Christ. But I didn't like make the connection that it was... Christ is going to be brought to trial and Peter's association with Christ is going to come into question. But Christ knew this. And so Christ was trying to warn Peter that he needed to be prepared because his association is going to come into question very shortly. And 
we're going to go into it more when we get to the trials, but like he needed Peter to know that he needed to be more resolute in his conviction and in his like knowledge and faith in who Jesus Christ was as his savior, because the time was coming that he was going to be tested on that. And so I, I love this story now. I never made that connection. And it really opened my eyes when I was reading the New Testament made easier. And here's a quote that I want to share. It says, we need clarification on the situation. And until we get it from a, a reliable source, we are left to wonder about his, Peter's, denying knowing the Savior three times. Some think he denied his testimony and thus denied the Holy Ghost, which is an unpardonable sin. He did not. He denied knowing the Savior. It is out of character for Peter to be afraid of people and what they think. In fact, before this most difficult night is over, he will draw a sword and cut off a, an ear of one of those who arrest Christ. Perhaps the Savior was prophetically commanding Peter to deny knowing him on the three upcoming occasions during the night when it will be claimed that he is an associate of Jesus in order to prevent Peter's death at this time. Perhaps it is to remind Peter that he is not as strong and committed as he thinks he is. Whatever the case, we need more information before we draw any final conclusion on this matter. So Peter is basically my favorite. He he was in a few other spectrums already, but like now I'm just like, oh my gosh, like this is such a this is such an important story. Like I never thought of it in that understanding. And it just really opens up my eyes because th there is a difference between saying, I don't know who Christ is or I don't believe in him. I love how that just said like maybe the savior was commanding him to deny him so that way he didn't have the whole guilty by association thing happen to him and then die the same day because the savior needed his disciples to continue working after he left. So that's awesome. Traumatizing for Peter later on, but you know, something things have to happen, I guess. Yeah. All right, so the next part is Christ offering the intercessory prayer, and that can be found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30, Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26, Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 32, and John chapter 17. Back in the April 2013 Enzyme article about Easter week, it says, At the end of the evening, Jesus offered the intercessory prayer where he prayed that the disciples might become one in unity. John chapter 17 offers the entire prayer and focuses on how Christ hopes that the disciples can become one as the Lord is one with the Father. And I think this is a very important prayer for us to highlight, especially now, um, because as we do get closer to Easter, we do need to recognize that everything about Easter had to do with the Savior being one with the Father. And if we have any hope of understanding and applying the atonement more fully in our lives, we do have to become one with the Lord and with the Father. And so, and that involves, like we talked about last week, submitting your will to the Lord, being humble, listening to him, and trying to be of one heart and one mind with them. So I think it's beautiful and important that we have this lesson. Afterwards, he teaches the apostles or the remaining apostles to love one another and to really be united as apostles because stuff's going to get real challenging soon. Yep. I really love how that's like his final main message to his disciple. He's like, be united and love one another. Like when you can do that, then you can do anything. After he is done teaching, then he moves on and it's time to go to Gethsemane. So you can find this section in Mark 14, verses 32 through 42, Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, Luke 22, verses 39 through 46, and even Doctrine and Covenants 19, verses 16 through 19. So 
That night is the most important night on this earth as Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where the heart of his sacrifice took place. The Savior led his disciples to Gethsemane and asked the disciples to sit there and watch while he goes to pray. Of course, we do know from the account that the disciples do fall asleep while the Savior prays and suffers. When I first read that story, I was like, why couldn't they stay awake? Like, they could have helped him. This was something that I've been thinking about since I was like a teenager, honestly. But then as I got older, I thought more about what the situation was and how it was really late at night, most likely. So they were all exhausted, but also how I know I've experienced this, how sometimes Heavenly Father keeps us distracted or away from big spiritual moments that are happening with other people. Like this time was physically and emotionally draining for the Savior. And if they were part of this, like they would have heard Christ suffering and they probably would have done anything to intercede, which would have completely ruined the possibility of the atonement. It would have completely destroyed that. Christ had to go through it. And even though we know from the account that Christ continuously gets up to wake them up and be like, why can't you watch a little bit longer? I feel like they really couldn't have been awake because they would have tried to help him or to ask the father to make it stop. Well, it's just interesting too, though, because like Christ could have just like left them and been like complaining to himself or like just not even cared. Yeah, they're falling asleep. Um, But part of me like does kind of want to like he did have to do this alone, but Christ didn't want to be alone. Like he wouldn't have wanted to be alone during this. This is something no other human could ever take on. And to feel even a little bit alone during this could have been very hurtful. Um, But I do agree with what you're saying that they were, I mean, like we said, they were exhausted. Like they were already doing so much. But yeah, there is a chance that the Lord was like, this isn't for you. Like it would be nice if you could stay up and watch. But like, no, this this, this is for Christ. You can't help him right now. This is on him. All right. So in Matthew 26, verse 39, during perhaps the most excruciating part of his suffering, the Savior says, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. In Doctrine and Covenants 19, verses 16 through 19, we learn about Christ's pain and suffering and learn that he suffered and drank the bitter cup so that we wouldn't have to at the last day. He did everything so that we would be able to repent and not feel the anguish of body and spirit that he had to endure. It's so hard to visualize this sometimes because there's so much that we cannot comprehend that Jesus went through in these last moments. Like, we, we literally can't. This was only for him to do. And even when we do try to find something to parallel to it, it's it still doesn't even seem to be enough. Like, I can't fathom how much he took on. And even this is just a small glimpse of the pressure and the pain that he went through for us. So, next thing is that Judas really does betray Jesus, that scoundrel, Um So that can be found in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 51. So we already talked about this, that Jesus had already said that Judas would betray him. After his trial in Gethsemane, Judas comes with his quote-unquote friends to betray Jesus, who consist of Roman soldiers, Pharisees, and many other horrible humans in the community. Judas previously told the crowd that he will let them all know who Jesus is by kissing him on the cheek. So in this moment, Judas approaches Jesus, he kisses him on the cheek, and the soldiers move forward to arrest him. Jesus has apostles who run away, but he also has apostles who stay and are ready to fight. One 
As we have learned earlier, Peter, in fact, cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers, but Jesus tells him to knock it off and then reaches out, heals the enemy, and allows himself to be taken into custody. By this time, it is well after midnight and into the final day of his life. Um, In James E. Talmadge's book, Jesus the Christ, he wrote that when Jesus was taken into custody in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the eleven then first succumbed basically and fled. This is not to be counted as certain evidence of cowardice, for the Lord had indicated that they should go. So Peter and at least one other disciple followed afar off. Um, So they cut off ears, then they ran for it, which is understandable. Like they were about, they would have gotten arrested as well. This is where the merging point from day five to day six is. So we're diving into now the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yes. So the high priest spend the rest of the night and the early morning hours questioning Jesus. He is bound with no chance to rest or sleep as he is questioned by three different leaders. They are spiritual, they are religious leaders, and there are Roman leaders. There was the nightly mocking trial, which was led by Annas, a former Jewish high priest. It's believed that there was another one before Annas, which is hard. It's hard to tell which one, but both of them were illegal. Like all of these trials that happened that quickly were illegal. Yeah. From my basic understanding, the reason for that is because you can't hold trials like in the middle of the night kind of situation. Also like... Annas had already been removed from his role, but his son-in-law was Caiaphas, who we hear a lot about in the New Testament during this time. So because of his son-in-law, he still had a lot of influence in the community. Um, Once it was daytime, Jesus was taken to Caiaphas for a trial by his council, and the council was known as the Sanhedrin, which was the highest court run by the Jewish religious leaders at that time. Right. So from the 1972 Enzyme article, the one by Daniel Ludlow, it says, The events of the remainder of that night and the chief events of the next day are listed by the writers of the four Gospels. These events include the appearance and illegal trial before the high priest, hey, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, where he was first charged with sedition as a disturber of the peace, but was then accused of blasphemy, falsely assuming the power of God, which was the most serious charge in Jewish law. So when he was asked directly, tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God, in Matthew 26, 63, his answer was clear and definite, I am. That's in Mark 14, 62. The apostate high priest cried out, he hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? He is guilty of death. That is marked in Matthew 26, verses 65 and 66. However, the power of to pronounce capital punishment had been taken away from the Jewish council by Roman decree. Thus, the leaders of the Sanhedrin had had him delivered to Pilate so an official decree of death could be issued. So shady. It's all so shady. Well, then it's interesting, and we're about to highlight that, but so the Romans had come in and they wanted to, of course, control everything, but they did end up really giving the Jews, the Jewish community and their leaders quite a bit of power. There was just a few things that they couldn't do themselves which is just really interesting in this situation but it really highlights how everyone was willing to do this to christ everyone yeah before we get to all of the trials that happened the illegal trials um we're going to talk about peter denying jesus christ three times this account can be found in luke chapter 22 verses 54 through 62 so back in james e talmage's book jesus the christ he writes 
While Jesus was before the Sanhedrists, Peter remained below with the servants. The attendant at the door was a young woman. Her feminine suspicions had been aroused when she admitted Peter, and as he sat with a crowd in the palace court, she came up, and having intently observed him, said, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But Peter denied it, averting that he did not know Jesus. Peter was restless. His conscience and the fear of identification as one of the Lord's disciples troubled him. He left the crowd and sought partial seclusion in the porch, but there was another maid, spied him out, and said to those nearby, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth, to which accusation Peter replied with an oath, I do not know the man. Like we began explaining earlier, Christ warned Peter that he would deny Christ three times before the rooster crowed for the morning. Peter didn't believe him because Peter loved Christ. But as we see here, Peter's denial of Christ wasn't like he was being tortured and like forced to deny everything that he knew about Christ. His denial of Christ was by association. Peter was trying to protect himself from being potentially drawn into another trial, into an arrest, and into a conviction. So every time someone said, hey, weren't you friends with that one guy, Jesus? He was like, nope, not me. You got the wrong guy. Don't know him. Later in verse 62, we learn that when the rooster crows for the morning, Peter went out and wept bitterly. He knew that he had denied Christ and he knew that he should have been more resolute and that Christ's warning earlier in the night was meant for this time. And so Peter just felt awful. And I think about this a lot because like Peter's reaction is very human. It is. I mean, he'd just come from a very stressful situation. He'd cut someone's ear off. They'd seen his face. They like those in power had seen his face with Jesus. Like he was hiding out. He was terrified. Yeah. Like if he had said like, yeah, I was with Jesus earlier, then the people could have turned on him and been like, arrest that guy. He knows more. Like, go take him too. And so Peter was really in like self-preservation mode. The older I get, the more I realize and I empathize for Peter in this moment that like he was trying his best to like protect himself and not realizing that he was fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus had just given him. So I, again, I love this story. It is very, very important. Yep, that happens. And we don't have any idea what happened to the other disciples there. I mean, they'd all be hiding out. They'd all be keeping a close eye on what's going on, but there's very little they could do at this point. So while that's going on, we go back to Jesus with the trials and the scourging. So Luke 23, the overall chapter does a really good job of covering it all. So we don't know about the early uh, morning cases, uh, trials that are going on, but we do really know about his trial before Pontius Pilate, the governor. So the Bible dictionary tells us that he was a Roman procurator in Judea. He was usually in Caesarea, but he would visit Jerusalem during feast time. And we know that he had great contempt for the Jewish people and for their religion. During his term in office, there was much disorder, mainly in consequence of an attempt he made to introduce into the city silver busts of the emperor on the Roman signs. And it mentions somewhere in Luke how he killed some Galileans during an outbreak um, sedition attempt during the feast. So he was not really a popular man. As we said, the Sanhedrin had no power to carry out their sentence of death, and Pilate's consent had to be obtained. The Lord was therefore charged before him with stirring up sedition, making himself a king, and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. So only with these kind of accusations could they take Jesus to Pilate and be like, here, we want to kill him. He's done these things to you and your people, so we have a right to do this. 
However, as Pilate talked to him, he saw that there was no evidence to support the charges. And having received warning from his wife, he wanted to dismiss the case. He also tried to avoid all responsibility in the matter by sending our Lord for trial to Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee. But Herod sent him back without any formal decision on the case. It's also interesting to note that Herod was in town for Passover. So he was probably like, dude, I just want to be with my family and like enjoy Passover. Like, can y'all, can y'all leave me alone, please? Like, take care of it yourselves. That's true. The New Testament Made Easier book does point out that it wasn't until the Jews threatened to send a report to the Emperor Tiberius, whose suspicious nature Pilate knew well, that he, that Pilate was then willing to pass a death sentence, knowing it to be unjust. The sentence was carried out under his directions by Roman soldiers. Pilate was removed from office a few years later in consequence of a disturbance to Samaria. So he was just very much a problematic person in his lifetime. So to summarize the messy trial before Pilate, Pilate came outside to hear the charges, but he found no fault in Christ. Pilate was going to let the Savior free, but one of his priests claimed that Jesus had been teaching treason. Pilate, remembering Jesus was from Galilee, sent the Savior to Herod, but Christ refused to answer any questions that Herod asked him. Annoyed, Herod sent him back to Pilate. So then Pilate brought Christ before the Sanhedrin, who were determined to have a death sentence, but Pilate still could not find a fault or reason to kill him. He even said in Luke 23, verse 16, I will chastise him and release him. He also reminded the Jews that it was a custom during Passover to release one prisoner from prison and that he was willing to do this for Jesus. But that's not what the people wanted. The people cried out, release Barabbas, who was a murderer and guilty of sedition which is mentioned in Luke 23, verse 18. And ultimately, Pilate, even though he could find no fault with Christ, he was overwhelmed by the voice of the people telling him that he wasn't a true friend of Caesar or a leader. And so he literally washed his hands of the Savior's blood in Matthew 27, 25, and agreed to the crucifixion. So he then turned the Savior over to the soldiers to be scourged. So the Savior had to be scourged, which was a practice that Roman soldiers would do, and many prisoners during that time did not survive the scourging. And it's basically just like a really harsh whipping and so on. He was scourged, he was given a crown of thorns, and forced to carry his cross to Golgotha, which is apparently a mile and a half. Okay, and then he was he was helped a little bit along the way um, by Simon of Cyrene. So that's mentioned in... Mark 15, 21, and with references to the New Testament made easier, it says, And they compel or force one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country. He was probably a foreigner, even a Jew, who had come to celebrate Passover, who came from Cyrene, a city in North Africa, to bear or carry Christ's cross. And that's because after the suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, the whipping, the mocking, and so forth, Jesus was too weak to carry his own cross, which was technically a a part of the legally required punishment and torture that went along with crucifixion. As this goes on, Pilate ordered the words, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, to be inscribed on the cross in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. That's mentioned in John 19, verses 21 through 22. So this angered the Jews because they wanted to be corrected to saying that Jesus had claimed to be king, whereas in Pilate's words, it basically said, Jesus is the king. But Pilate refused to change it. Oh, gosh. Anyways, so that leads us into the crucifixion, which can be found in Luke chapter 23, verses 27 through 46, Matthew chapter 27, verses 28 through 54, and John chapter 19. So after all of these illegal trials, the scourging, and making him carry his cross to Golgotha, 
Christ allowed himself to be crucified, which was completing the great and last sacrifice that would make salvation possible for all mankind. It is expected that he was put on the cross around 9 a.m. after probably 12 hours of just continuous agony and pain. Once he was on the cross, soldiers ripped his clothes and then they gambled for them. As he suffered, people mocked him and the other two men who were also being crucified that day were also being mocked. So in Luke's account, we read of the Savior's mercy extending to another man being crucified that day. One of the men said, if you're really the son of God, then why don't you save us and get us out of this mess? And the other man rebuked him and said that they deserve their retributions. They deserve to be crucified because they really were sinners and robbers and murderers. That man says to the Savior, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Savior says, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So this was said to the thieves who were crucified with Jesus, who wanted him to save himself. Christ also looks upon the remaining disciples, the followers, and his loved ones at the crucifixion. And he sees his mom, which is something that I always love this section. He calls to Peter and he says in John 19 verses 26 through 27, Behold thy mother, behold thy son. So even during his suffering and as he's about to die, he is thinking of someone else and he's trying to extend mercy. I love that. It's, yeah, like every detail about this is so important and incredible. And I mean, I just learned in the New Testament Made Easier that it was common for victims of crucifixion to live two or three days on the crosses before dying. The soldier who is startled in Mark 15, he was startled because he was experience in crucifying people and it appeared to him that jesus who was still relatively strong and only after six hours on the cross had decided to leave his body and did so that's exactly what happened and the roman soldier apparently received a witness of christ at that moment wow so as we see throughout the crucifixion the savior is consistently trying to remind the people of like merciful things he's constantly trying to forgive and have them look at one another and he's trying to extend mercy no matter what. But as he is going through the last few hours of his life, he also has to be alone for a moment as part of the plan for the atonement to fully work. In Matthew 27 verse 46, we see the Savior realize that the Spirit of God has withdrawn from him and he says, quote, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? End quote. In the New Testament study guide book, it says, This was a very difficult time for the Savior, incomprehensibly difficult for us to understand. Apparently, as part of the atonement, Jesus had to experience what sinners do when they sin so much that the Spirit leaves them. At this point on the cross, we understand that all available help from the Father withdrew in order that the Savior might experience all things, including the withdrawal of the Spirit which sinners experience. Elder Holland explains how that moment was necessary because the Savior had to know how truly all of us could potentially feel at any point in time in our lives so that way he could best help us and assist us. And at this moment too, Elder Holland explains how it's entirely possible that the Father had to withdraw his spirit because he couldn't bear to watch this happen anymore. 
he had to withdraw the spirit because he was like, I can't, I can't watch this anymore. So after the withdrawal of the spirit, he has now officially atoned for all of the sins, all of our frailties, and all of the weaknesses of mankind that could potentially keep them from the presence of the Father. As he does this, he says, quote, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, which is in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. After this moment, Jesus accepts a vessel full of vinegar mingled with gall on a sponge for him. He only received it after he had done everything that he needed to do. And then he gives up the ghost and says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, which can be found in Luke 23:46. After his passing, the veil of the temple is rent, an earthquake occurs, and in Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53, we learn about bodies coming forth out of the grave, which we'll go into more in our resurrection episode. And then shortly after this, soldiers pierced the sides of Jesus to see if he really was dead. And we learn this because John remained and he saw this for himself and put it in his account. And so ultimately, all of this happened within just a span of a couple of hours, as we mentioned. Um, So he was put on the cross around 9 a.m. after all of his super early and mostly illegal trials. Um, Then darkness swept over the land around noon, three hours later, and that lasted until 3 p.m., which is when he died. So while Christ was on the cross, he said seven things um, as his final words, essentially. And they all have very powerful and impactful messages for us to remember. The first one was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's in Luke 23, 34. So he's still asking for forgiveness and loving those around him. His second message was, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, which is in Luke 23, 43. Which is a reminder, as we said before, um, about the potential of the spirit world and resurrection and the potential that we have to continue learning there. Number three is, Woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother, um, in John 16, verses 26 through 27, and that's him still taking care of everyone around him. Number four is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's where he experiences true loneliness and aloneness in his life, and that's in Matthew 27, verse 46. Number five was, I thirst, um, so it, shows, it still shows he was very human. And that's in John 19, 28. Number six is, it is finished. And that's John 19, 30, where he's saying, I have, I've accomplished everything that I came here to do. I was able to finish this. And finally, number seven is, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That's in Luke 23, verse 46, where he is officially done and he's ready to move on. That is everything that happens on that Friday for Jesus. So Christ gives up the spirit around 3 p.m. This seems like the end to most of the people, especially to those who wanted Christ to be done and dead. Fortunately, it is not over. So he is dead, but his followers and those who love him don't want to keep Christ on the cross. There's no reason for him to remain there once he is dead. So it's time to now find him a burial place. The section of how Christ's body is placed in a tomb can be found in Matthew 27, verses 57 through 60, Mark 15, verses 43 through 46, Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 53, and John 19, verses 38 through 42. So it's Joseph of Arimathea who provides a tomb for the Savior. And so they wrap Christ's body and they take it to the tomb as the day is coming to an end. So it is important and interesting to note that Joseph was a counselor on the leading governing 
Council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. Joseph had opposed the decision, however, of the Jewish religious leaders to execute Jesus. People learned that Christ was being, you know, he was being taken down off the cross. He was going to be given a burial spot. And they knew that he was saying, hey, I'm going to rise again in three days. So the non-believers asked for Roman guards to be put there before the tomb to guard it lest his followers try to do a trick and and hide his body and say, hey, he's risen. Um, But it's nice to know that an angel eventually scares away the guards. So it's important to notice that this was on at the end of the day and the women did what they could to take care of Christ's body, but they were only able to do so much because it was about to be the Sabbath. Um, at, I believe at, at nightfall is when the next day was basically beginning and they couldn't do that on the Sabbath. They would have to wait to do their customary preparation of a body for a final burial the day after the Sabbath. And so that's the last day um, of Christ's life. Then, and so we move on to day seven, where Christ teaches in the spirit world. Right. So the account of Christ teaching in the spirit world can be found in Doctrine and Covenants section 138, verses 11 through 24, and verse 27, and then 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, and 1 Peter 4, verse 6. So while the body of Christ laid in the tomb, we know from New Testament revelation given by Peter, as well as from modern day revelation from Joseph F. Smith in Doctrine and Covenants section 138, that Christ's spirit ministered to those who were living in the spirit world at this time. From Joseph F. Smith's revelation in Doctrine and Covenants section 138, President Smith was pondering the words of Peter in 1 Peter 4.6 about the purpose and timing of the gospel being preached to the spirits in the spirit world. And this is in reference to the spirits that were alive before Christ's earthly ministry. He further explains that, quote, The eyes of my understanding were open, and the Spirit of the Lord rested upon me, and I saw the hosts of the dead, both small and great. And there were gathered together in one place an innumerable company of the spirits of the just, who had been faithful in the testimony of Jesus while they lived in mortality. There he preached to them the everlasting gospel, the doctrine of the resurrection and the redemption of mankind from the fall, and from individual sins on conditions of repentance, end quote. He also explains that the Savior didn't go to the spirits that were in spirit prison, but instead he organized and sent messengers to teach those spirits. All of this occurred during the brief time intervening between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which can be found in section 138, verse 27. It's interesting to note this is where Christ establishes the pattern of teaching spirits in the spirit world. So it wasn't already happening because Christ hadn't come to earth yet to establish his gospel and to establish his church. It had to wait until after he died and came back to the spirit world that he could establish all of this. And then, you know, it says that he sent messengers to teach those in spirit prison. It could have like his past prophets, his past disciples from like Old Testament times being those people that were teaching the spirits in spirit prison and establishing that pattern of teaching. So then there is this great quote from the New Testament book that says, Yet also imagine the Savior's feelings having left his pain-ridden mortal body as he now enters the spirit world, paradise, where an innumerable company of the spirits of the just who had been faithful await him. From rejection, mocking, and crucifixion, he now enters the realm where faithful saints welcome him and anxiously await his message to them. And so that's such a cute juxtaposition because like, he left the worst experience on the face of the planet, literally, 
to the greatest reunion and the greatest welcome that could ever happen. Oh, I cannot even, yeah, I cannot fathom how wonderful it must have been to go from that to something amazing like that. I just like want to sense the joy that he must have had and the love that he had then. Um, okay, though it does beg a question because I thought that while during those days he was in the tomb, that they thought he was in the tomb, was it also when he was going to the new world? I swear that's when people teach that. They're just like, you went there and then you went like right there. No, it happened after the resurrection. Because if you remember from our Bible episode last season, we talk about how we're missing an entire chunk of an account in the New Testament about the 40 days that Christ Mm -hmm. spent with the apostles after his resurrection. I am fairly certain that this happened after the resurrection because he was resurrected at this point when he is with the people with the Nephites because they can feel his actual body and that wouldn't be possible if he was still in between death Mm -hmm. and the resurrection that makes sense thank you I just want like a super clear timeline like and I know we'll have it someday I just that's good though okay thank you all right so he does all of that amazing stuff day eight he is risen. Woo! Amazing stuff. So this is one of my favorite parts. So you can find it in Luke 24, verses 1 through 11. John 20, verses 11 through 18. Matthew 28, verse 9, and then 16 through 20. Yes. Does Mark not talk about this? I mean, I didn't really look in Mark. I just found those three. Those were the three that I was using the most. Oh, okay. This is when the women go the morning after the Sabbath to dress and care for Jesus' body. Depending on the account, these women included Mary Magdalene, Mary Martha's sister, then two other women that I don't think we really ever get to hear much about, but their names do get mentioned, Joanna and Salome. Like we explained earlier, because it had been the Sabbath, the women could not anoint and prepare the body for burial like they normally would, so they had waited a day. And we love how the women showed honor to their tradition as well as to the Savior by rising early before daybreak to attend to the Savior's body. So because it mentions in the April 1972 Enzyme article, um, The Greatest Week in History, it says how John records that it was yet dark on the first day of the week in John 20 verse 1, when the women came to the tomb of the Savior with their sweet spices to anoint his body. However, they found the tomb empty and an angel explained to them why the body of the Savior was not therein. It says, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly, and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. In reference, Matthew 28, verses 5-7. through seven. And it also mentions in the article, And so the darkness and the despair of Friday were changed into the light and the joy of the day when the Savior was resurrected from the dead, breaking forever the bands of physical death and guaranteeing every person life after death. What event in all history is there to compare with this? It's also interesting to note that in Luke's account, it's very similar, but there's a slight difference where it's, there are two angels in shining garments. And then it also mentions how the women were afraid and bowed as they were asked, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. So another important story that we would be absolutely remiss to 
exclude is the experience of Mary Magdalene being the first person to see the resurrected Savior. So this account can be found in John 20 verses 11 through 18. So the women ran to tell the disciples about the empty tomb after speaking with the angels, but Mary Magdalene stayed. As we know from the account, Mary cried outside the tomb, and someone approached her, asking, Woman, why weepest thou? She begs the person, not looking at them, who she believes to be the gardener, she begs that person to tell her where they have moved Christ's body. And then the resurrected Savior says her name, Mary, and she immediately recognizes his voice and personage as her beloved Savior. He then tells her to go and tell the disciples that she has seen Christ. This is really one of my favorite parts because all he has to do is say her name and she knows him. Yeah. And it's a beautiful reminder that Christ and our Heavenly Parents know us by name and they know us inside and out in that way and better. And it's something that we can hold to ourselves whenever we need that kind of comfort. Yeah. It's such a beautiful story because out of everyone that he could have appeared to first, he chose a woman to appear to, which is awesome because clearly the Savior values women more than everyone else. But also because he knew that Mary would listen to him and do what he told her to do. So she listened and she left to tell the others, especially the men, and none of them believed him. Peter ran to go like see the tomb and he saw that there was no Jesus, but he was like, oh, well, he's not here. I guess I got to go somewhere else and be sad. But then Jesus appears to two other disciples on the road to Emmaus and they went and told people. And again, nobody believed them. And my favorite story is that he appears to the 11 and scolds Thomas, especially for the unbelief because Thomas the whole time is basically like, yeah, 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 I'll believe it when he appears here in front of my face and shows me that he is risen. And then he shows up and he's like, bam, Thomas, I told you so. I'm I'm here. Well, it's also very interesting because he's got that nickname now, Doubting Thomas, even though everyone else is like, what? No, he's not. He can't be risen. That's not a thing. Sorry, Thomas, you've got the worst luck to get named there, but you're Doubting Thomas now. After he appears to all of the 12 and everybody else, he charges the 12 to preach the gospel to all the world and to go forth and do his work. So that is going to be saved for another time in place and another episode, possibly in the future. But we just wanted to close with that little bit. <laughs> we do know that as Jesus started to appear to more people, we don't know exactly the timeline and that ha- like if that was like all happened on that day or another day. Um, like the next day, um, we don't really know how that happened. And from this point forward, we'll, we're not keeping track of the days. But the New Testament Made Easier does point out that it believes that the reason we now treat Sundays as our Sabbath is because of this, because we believe that this was the day that Christ was risen. There are still other faiths that believe it's Saturday. Um, but yeah, because we believe Jesus was risen on a Sunday, that has become our new Sabbath in respect to him. I love all of this. This is so good. To wrap up this very long episode, (laughs) we really underestimated how long this episode would be when we were planning it because we didn't even realize all of the many events that happened within the final week of Christ's life, especially within the last 24 hours. There was so much that we just didn't recognize in the timeline. And so we 
we felt like we needed this episode probably more than you guys because we needed to gain a better understanding of his final week. And we hope that this episode helped you all gain a similar understanding and helped you to understand what the days leading up to and encompassing the atonement were like. Again, we're going to be going more in depth throughout this series as we discuss the blessings of the atonement and how to apply them more fully to our lives. And we'll definitely be going over some of these events again, but we wanted to outline this for you so that way you could see like how much really happened within that last week and understand the magnitude of the atonement just from a timeline standpoint. But yes, honestly, Tracy, I feel like you really encompass everything that we are trying to get across. This was such a unique learning opportunity for us. This is something that I've been wanting to do for myself, actually, for a while. I've been wanting to get a better understanding of the last days of Christ and to better understand the atonement as well overall. And so I am so glad, so glad we are doing this. And I've grown, I've already learned so much um, in doing this episode. And I'm really looking forward to all that we talk about next, because I believe that this is so important for us, not just to continue growing in this lifetime, but to grow closer to our Lord and Savior, because we can't really do anything unless we really understand what we're doing. So the better we understand the atonement, the more we're going to be able to be aware to make better choices and to grow closer to our heavenly parents. Truly. Go back through what we've shared today. Look up the scriptural references we've shared. Eventually in the future, we will have a blog post that has links to all of our references. (laughs) We promise we're working on them. We're catching up. But we really encourage you to go back and listen again and figure out where all of these things happened. Exactly. And you can easily use those two main Ensign articles that we referenced. They were The Greatest Week in History and Easter Week. And between those two, you you will get so much out of that. We can promise that. So much. Next week, we're going to be talking about the strengthening and enabling power of the atonement. And I personally am super excited about this one. I've been hyping Kaylee up about it with an article. (laughs) So just get ready. It's going to be a great episode and we're going to have a really good time. So thanks for listening this week, guys. And we will see y'all next week. Yes. Thank you. Bye. Bye.